You're listening to Fertility Answers Live. Every week, we discuss critical topics related to fertility and infertility with the world's top experts. This episode is brought to you by the Fertility Answers app, the number one source for verified answers to all of your fertility questions. This is the conversation I've been waiting for for quite a while now. Unfortunately, our first scheduled chat with OC Fertility and the fabulous Dr. Such Dave got quote unquote rained out by my little one who was sick the very first time that we we're supposed to have our chat. So this has been a long time coming to talk about embryos. You know, we as a we get acronym overload, information overload, and everything under the sun when it comes to learning terminology. Hello. Hi. Dr. Such Dave, can you see me okay? Now I can. Yep. Okay, good. And I've been practicing saying your name correctly. How did I do? Ooh, A plus. I like okay. it. I've been practicing and I appreciate so much that your team gave me the phonetic spelling because I have oh, a pet well, peeve. I don't like screwing that up. Well, I appreciate that you took the time. That actually means a lot to me. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm sure I'm sure so many people screw it up. But Krishi always gets mispronounced Krisky. Yeah. Crisco. I mean you <laughs> <Creechy. laughs> Yeah, I feel you. Feel your pain. So this, you know, this is a conversation that comes up a ton because one thing that we see over and over that I'm sure you get in the practice is when people come from different clinics and they go, hey, we, the embryo grading makes no sense to me. And I think that we want to start with kind of a high level explanation of the three classifications that are currently used for embryos before mm -hmm. we get into live audience questions. Yeah, for sure. So, to, so breaking it down, right? When you do IVF, you can either make eggs or take those eggs, fertilize them and make embryos. Okay. So when, first of all, in talking about embryos, you have to take it back a step and say, well, what do we mean by embryos? So an egg is just a woman's egg, right? We fertilize it with a sperm. They divide, they, they um, fertilize to become two cells and has to grow to become many cells. Previously, many years ago, when talking about embryos, we primarily used to talk about embryos day three or cleavage stage. Those embryos had anywhere from like six to eight cells on average. Now, when we're talking about embryos, we primarily are talking about blastocysts. Um, they oftentimes synonymously, synonymously will get day five embryos because yes, they're grown out five days post-fertilization, but that can include day five, day six, or day seven. Mm. And so we're talking about embryos. And when talking about grading, you again, got to take a step uh, back a step and say, well, what are we looking for? And how do we grade these embryos? Right. So, okay, we're looking at the embryos. And I typically have a diagram that I show. So don't mind my, uh, my air <laughs> drawings. <laughs> but the embryo um, consists of two parts, okay, a tightly compacted group of cells, which we call the inner cell mass or ICM. This tightly compacted group of cells actually go on to become the fetus, the baby. And aligning the Amazing. outside of the cell are the trophectoderm cells. Those cells later go on to become the placenta. So all of these cells came from the initial two cells, the sperm and the egg. But then they grow and divide and they differentiate to Amazing. become two distinct parts, which is pivotal. So just talking about grades, right? So before we had the ability to biopsy embryos and assess what's going on inside, right? How did you determine, well, which one is more likely to get someone pregnant? And I think that's key right? Mm -hmm. We're looking at them and giving them grades, not saying which is better, which one is worse, saying which is more likely to get somebody pregnant. And so their embryologists are trained to objectively evaluate which one is, you know, more likely to get us pregnant versus not, but there is some subjectivity to it. So there's grades, there's a rubric that they use to determine how do the cells look? 
And so now that we have blastocysts with two different groupings of cells, they're gonna give them grades like we would get in school, A, B, C, or D. A is obviously better than D. And so the <laughs> inner cell mass and the trabectoderm each get their own grade. And it's the embryologist who have, mm. you know, experience looking at them and saying, hey, which ones have more cells? Which ones are tightly compacted? How do the cells look? And then they'll give the inner cell mass maybe an A or B, and then they'll get the trifectoderm like a C or a D. So, so is that why you have AA or an AB? Because yep. the, the left is going to be the inner, and yep. then the right is going to be the outer. Exactly. You're right? the first person to explain that so incredibly succinctly. I've been in the field oh. for 14 years, and that was the most precise Easy to understand explanation. <laughs> well, thank, well, you know, I, I do have the conversation somewhat frequently, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's the key, right? And so it's understanding, oh, why do we even do it? That's the key to everything, mm -hmm. understanding, right? So why did we even do this? Because before we had the way to more, you know, invasively assess the embryo, we had to say, well, which one, right? Well, you know, if we have the luxury of having more than one. Right. So that's taken about grades. And then to answer your question, okay, well, how do we categorize embryos mm -hmm. um, at a higher level? So again, to understand, well, we have the ability now to actually biopsy the embryos, to, meaning take some cells out of the embryo and assess, okay, what is, what's inside? Like, what is the, the genetic makeup of these cells? Okay. And you're but, taking the outer cells or the inner cells or a combination of both? No, we're taking the trophectoderm, which is the placenta the outer okay. cells. So that's key because, you know, they've done studies that say, hey, if we biopsy the embryos, whether they're normal or not, does that affect the implantation rates? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when they first started doing it, they, you know, we started biopsying um, cleavage stage embryos, which is, you know, day three embryos. And so when you take out one or two cells from a six or eight embryo, it's kind of not surprising that that actually did show to hurt and impact the implantation potential. Sure. But we're taking five to maybe 10 cells max from hundreds of cells. So we're taking it from the placenta with the thought that, hey, these cells, yes, they're coming from the placenta, they're not coming from the cells mm -hmm. that go on to be the fetus, but they all came from the same two cells. So this should be an accurate assessment of what I really care about, the cells that are going to be part of my baby, the fetus, okay? This is, this is amazing, you're doing such a great job at this, okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, look, my business partner is Santiago Munay, who yeah. invented, you know, the genetic testing of everything. Well, yeah, and my main mentor was uh, Dr. Griffo, so we did okay. projects with Dr. Munay, so um, and I think they it's, just, yeah. Yeah, they just published that study, right, about looking at mosaicism. Did you see that? That came out on LinkedIn, and so, you yeah. know, I'm hoping to get one of them on, on the show. But Santi's never explained this so well. Well, I mean, I learned almost everything I, you know, I learned 99% of what I learned from my training and, you know, Dr. Griffo and him work so closely together they, that they do. Yeah. Well, it might be the combination of, of speaking English, Catalan and Spanish, you know, <laughs> it might be that combo. But here's the thing that I think I want, I, I think that everybody is probably thinking like me, when people come to us and they say, wait a minute, I had this great embryo, and I still miscarried. And the way that you're explaining it, we're not, we're not taking a sample of the entire embryo. And so what we try to explain, and you're going to do a better job of explaining it, is that we don't have the entire genome of the embryo of fetal tissue. We don't have the entire genome, correct? Yeah. So yeah, we don't have every, every part of every fetal. But so... The, the concern is, well, if you're taking it from the placenta, how do we know that accurately assess the fetuses? And, and so they've done studies, and I actually, with Dr. Griffo, did our own study where we looked at embryos, and I re-biopsied the embryo. They had 
a, a biopsy, like a clinical um, uh, biopsy that was done. And then we took it and we just basically multiple uh, biopsy to multiple places, including the inner cell mass. And we compared and we said, hey, how likely is it that the inner cell mass? So I really, I was looking to say, hey, if we did it again from the trivectoderm, is it going to be the same? And, you know, for aneuploidy and euploidy, um, aneuploidy meaning an extra copy or missing a copy of a chromosome, euploid meaning having what we consider the appropriate copies, two copies, 46, um, and mosaic meaning some cells have extra, some cells don't. And so if it was uh, euploid or aneuploid, we thought, hey, it's actually pretty concordant. Um, even the inner cell mass correlates with That's the That's amazing. But if, the, if it was mosaic, well, it wasn't so clear. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, what, so what we're hearing there, though, is that if you have, like in the case of one of our, our audience members, a 4AA embryo, if you haven't done the biopsy and the genetic testing, you still could have an abnormal or a mosaic. You could. Yeah. I mean, I think it all boils down to, okay, well, you know, what is your clinical history uh, and your age? I mean, a lot of it is based upon your age. Mosaicism isn't as clearly uh, defined by age. I mean, we did, right. you know, I, I did a, a study with Dr. Monet, actually, that never turned into a paper, but um, it's actually got um, a, a diagram that I've seen kind of on multiple different websites where we looked at the rate of mosaicism in the donor egg population. And it was oh, as high as 20, 30%. Oh yeah, I mean, this, was, this was a while ago. It was, you know, sure. 2016, 2017. Um, but, but the key is that, and, and things have changed and how we diagnose things, et cetera, have changed. But, but you know, it, it isn't clear that mosaicism is directly correlated with age. Okay. Whereas we know aneuploidy, having a full extra copy mm -hmm. of a chromosome or missing a copy is associated with age. So right. That's, that's where all, you know, all the confusion, no, but like the mystery, the, the yeah. enigma that is mosaicism came to be. Right. This is really fascinating. And we have a couple of other questions that came in and I'm saying hi to all kinds of people. Um, <laughs> how old are we? Me or Dr. Sachdev? <laughs> Everybody on, on Instagram knows how old I am because I talk about my next embryo transfer up and coming. I'm 44. Uh, and we have somebody else who's not asking question per se about embryos directly, but would like to know how you counsel your patients on how to prepare for an FET, which we do get that question kind of a lot. And I think it's very relevant because everyone's thinking, how do I give myself the best shot of having the highest quality embryos? Yeah. So how do you prepare for an uh, FET? Meaning you already have the embryos. Now we're talking about putting it back in. Right. So I always counsel patients that, look, you want to put your best foot forward. You want to feel like you are mentally, emotionally, and as to the best of your ability, physically ready to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I would say that to somebody, even if they weren't undergoing IVF or fertility and just trying to get pregnant. So you want to feel like, you know, if there's any underlying mental health issues or anxiety or depression, which are common, uh, especially with the pandemic. Especially would, pandemic, exactly. Yeah. And then adding infertility on top of it. Totally, it's, yeah. It's a lot. Yeah, I would say it's important to have your support system, your emotional support, whether it's mm -hmm. somebody that's, you know, a therapist, a counselor, or you just have a friend or, or a family member or a partner that you can talk to about how you're feeling is key. You know, finding the best way that you can manage that emotions because it's an emotional roller coaster. The anticipation, the anxiety, the heightened anticipation of getting oh, yeah. to the transfer then after it is, is really hard. So I think mm -hmm. that's key. Um, if there's any mm -hmm. underlying mental health issues where you're taking medications, you know, to to make sure that your medications are optimized before you mm -hmm. get pregnant, we want to make sure that your medications are helping you to the best of your ability. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and, you know, some medications, we don't necessarily need to stop, 
in pregnancy. You know, there's pregnancy right. category A, B, C, D, and X. See, we have this grading for everything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, everyone, <laughs> everybody wants something tangible. They do. Exactly. And you it's know. something universal that we can all understand is the grading yeah. system. Yeah. It's human nature, right? I mean, we were all born with it, you know, and you exactly. got grades, you got, you know, if it's not A, B, or C, it's O, S, or N. So exactly. Yeah, you, you, can't, you can't blame people for that. But Right. So, yeah. So again, it just depends on the medication and, and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. And then physically, if you are somebody that is already physically fit, you feel like you're eating well and then great, stick to it. But if you're not, I mean, we all may have periods of times where we're like, hey, I really haven't been paying attention. Then this is the time before your transfer to really get there. Okay. Right. So right. no one says you got to be but, like, but not know, starting, like, don't do something extreme, like the week before. You know, no, yeah, right? I would say don't, don't try anything new. If you've never done CrossFit, don't start it the way don't before. Don't you? <laughs> Definitely no. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> but, you know, if you have been relatively sedentary for, you know, the last few, like I have a lot of patients who leading up yeah. or taking a break because they work, um, they're like CPAs or tax season is coming up. So oh, everybody yeah. is just kind of focused on that and stressed about that. And then they're like, yeah, I'm going to be ready to, to do it. Well, you may not have been doing what you were doing before. So just try to get right. back into it, right? Getting right. some exercise, eating well, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. And the, and the weather and the weather is improving. So getting outside and getting fresh air, especially if you live near you in Newport Beach, yeah. you know, Dr. Yeah. Such Deb practices in at OC fertility in, in gorgeous Newport Beach, California. Yeah. You know, so this is the time with spring coming to get outside and get a lot of fresh air. Take those totally. deep breaths to like cleanse the lungs. Totally. But you know, I, my mother-in-law lives in New Jersey. She sent me a screenshot of the weather. It was 75 degrees over there when it was 50 degrees here. So I think we all got a fair <laughs> shot at getting outside. Oh my goodness. That's funny. Yeah. Um, it's a little, well, yeah, you guys in California have been hit with some, with a, a very cold spell this week. Yeah, it, it was. The real feel was less than 40, <laughs> which is a big deal for us. <laughs> well, it is, especially on the coast. Cause that's, this is what we always said in California, right? is you don't understand how chilly 40 degrees feels until you have the ocean breeze on you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it, yeah. it's biting. It's like a biting cold, right? It is. But there's something my, you know, I'm from the East coast. Um, and my husband is like born and bred in the East coast. When we moved here, he would get cold and he would be like, yeah, there's, there's something wrong with me. Why am I feeling cold? I did the same because I grew up outside DC. And so you walk outside in 50 degrees, you know, on the beach thinking like, oh, it's going to feel like a baseball spring day or something. And then yeah. you're freezing and you're laughing at all the people in scarves on the beach until you realize, yeah. I get it now that, you know, I need to put my coat on and, and my, my scarf and gloves. Totally. That's hysterical. All right. So somebody else is asking more about the grading. 4AA, 5AA, or 6AA. What's the difference with the numeric part? And does it make a difference in implantation? Which one would you pick to, to transfer? So um, that's a great question. So we talked about the letters A, Bs, et cetera, and what they pertain to. But then the numeric rating has to do with how expanded the embryo is. So it's called a blastocyst. So cyst is a fluid-filled anything. Um, and so basically the embryo fills with fluid with inside to have it to expand. And that's important because then you can clearly um, differentiate the two different groups of cells, the inner cell mass versus the trophectoderm. And so Four is fully expanded. Five means it's starting to hatch. So mm -hmm. the embryo, the cells, um, are contained within a, a hardened glycoprotein area called a um, zona pellucida, which basically keeps everything contained. But in order to implant, it's got to hatch out. And so four is it's completely expanded. Five is it's about to hatch. And six is completely hatched. And so... Ah. They're all good gradings. I would probably defer to your specific fertility mm -hmm. center and their own labs. But I usually tell patients, I said, look, you know, 
when, when we do transfers, we'll say, you know, what are you looking for? Is it a single best embryo? Is it a single best mm -hmm. embryo of a certain gender? Mm. And if it's single best embryo, I, I don't really break it down to them, say this is better than this is versus that. Mm -hmm. I say it's a complicated factor with many things. And the embryologist will decide what they feel mm -hmm. is the best based on your age, based on the, whether it's day five, day six, and the grade. And sure. it's not always linear that, you know. Right. So um, I usually say that, you know, good is good. And the difference in mm -hmm. percentages for implantation is probably mm -hmm. anywhere from like five to 10% at most. And then wow. it really just boils down to like, you know, I'll counsel patients that kind of statistically, if you have a chromosome normal embryo, your chance of having a live birth per transfer is between 60 to 65%, right? Which is really good. But on an individual level, the results are mm -hmm. binary. It's zero or 100%. I'm not going to give you 65% of a baby. So for uh, everybody, it basically boils down to 50-50 at times, right? Right. And so when talking about the percentages, I say, you know, what is your goal? If you have a gender in mind, then that's great. Then let's choose the gender. But if you don't have a gender, let's just say single best embryo and let's not focus on 4AA versus 5AA versus 6AA because the percentages aren't significantly different. That was really helpful. I'm remembering back when, when my son, he was a five, so he was, he was not fully hatched. My one female embryo was fully hatched. This is back when it was still, uh, when it was still sort of politically okay to do double embryo transfers. <laughs> we didn't really know any, it was so many years ago, we didn't know any difference. Now I would never, but I probably still would have transferred the girl because she was fully hatched. And I, we, I didn't really have a good, you're so good at explaining it. It was never explained to me that way, even by the embryologist. And so it is kind of interesting to look at. I did a double embryo transfer. I'm not doing that now, ladies, just keep that in mind. My second transfer, only one at a time. I had to explain to my to my seven-year-old why we don't want to go for twins <laughs> and he knows a little too much that he shouldn't know and he was like one could still split yeah <laughs> I was like stop yeah. putting that into the universe so yeah. but you know he he was partial so I think that that what is so helpful the way that you described it because I think you know as we're looking at it it seems like well doesn't fully hatch mean that that it's it's closer right it's like it, you know but we don't that little difference between almost hatched versus fully hatched. And we don't know, you know, how the body is going to respond or if it's going to, to, to implant or not. And yeah. that must be, that must be hard for you and your embryologist and the patient to all collectively have to make that decision when they're so close to each other in terms of quality. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the only time I really differentiate between one or the other is if somebody is doing gender selection. So then mm -hmm. I think the part of the conversation for gender selection is saying, hey, you know, there's not, we can totally do that, but just know that it may not be the best embryo when we're choosing single best embryo. Yeah, sure. Right. So, so uh -huh. I mean, again, you're not in decreasing your implantation rate significantly, but. So. Right. We have a non-embryo uh, non related question um, for one of our, our regular community members. So I do want to honor Annette, your, your question. Yeah. Is it normal to have vaginal itching a week leading up to your period? Is that kind of a normal thing or might there be something going on? Uh, it, it kind of depends on how, um, dis how discomforting it is. So when you are leading up to your period, that's called the luteal phase. So you've ovulated, you have a rise in progesterone. So the hormonal milieu of your vagina could be different based mm -hmm. upon, you know, the different hormones you're having versus the beginning part of it. And so you might have, it could be physiologic, but if it's causing you discomfort or you feel like it's red or inflamed, 
I would uh, see your gynecologist just for an evaluation. Sure. Make sure it's not a yeast infection or yeah. a bacteria or something. And yeah. Annette, don't forget that our resident OBGYN, you know, the fabulous Dr. Sherry says you need to take care of your vagina the way that you take care of your face. So don't leave out moisturizing as well. And she's got a great product line on the Dr. Sherry website um, that is safe for trying to conceive. Um, Jessa would like to know what supplements you typically recommend as people are leading up to an FET and, uh, you know, or do you leave them out and just focus on the folic acid? Uh, it's really specific. I don't routinely have supplements that I give for the embryo transfer. I will sometimes for the egg retrieval specifically. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yes, the prenatal vitamin with folic acid and DHA for everybody, mm-hmm. whether they're doing IVF or the FET part. Um, but I don't have any specific ones unless they're mm-hmm. issue specific that I give. Um, we, you know, we have our patients take baby aspirin prior to our transfers. So okay. that's not a supplement, but it's sometimes it kind of feels like it's like a supplement because it's fairly, <laughs> it's so, but it's so tiny. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so tiny. Now that's, we've seen that that's kind of clinic by clinic. So you must have very good success rates by doing that. We do have a lot of patients that say, oh, well, my friend at this clinic is doing baby aspirin, but my clinic didn't tell me to do that. Should I do it? You know, and and they come to us and then we have to say, no, you have to talk to your doctor because there might be a reason that they aren't doing it. Um, What is, you know, what were the studies leading up to you having kind of standard of care? So, I mean, part of it is, you know, some of the studies were traditional studies that were done prior to it. And some of the studies also have to do with kind of pregnancy, right? So baby aspirin is thought that it might have some association with decreasing um, preeclampsia. And Mm -hmm. so preeclampsia is really thought to affect how the embryo uh, implants and how the placentation occurs. And so we know that with IVF, there's slightly increased risks with obstetrical outcomes, such as preterm delivery and Mm preeclampsia. Some of that could be because some of our patients are older, but overall, like we said, it's really benign and we haven't seen any adverse Mm -hmm. outcomes with it. So, you know, our clinic feels as if patients um, can only benefit from it. And so we actually, when we discontinue their medications, we won't discontinue it. We'll say, hey, you know, because we'll see patients up to 12 weeks. And so by that time, they've seen their OB and we say, let's have a discussion with your OB. And many of them will keep them on it. Okay, I love that you also see patients to week 12, because a lot of clinics only see them to week nine, which is either way, whether it's week nine or week 12, we, we all cry over graduation day. Yeah. <laughs> we get so attached to you and to the nursing staff and to everyone that yeah. the handoff is very difficult. So I appreciate the fact that you see people up to week 12. Yeah. Well, it's hard because you've like developed such a like close relationship, right? So it's kind of like the end of a school year, how when you were younger, you know, and like you would be excited that it's summer because it's a good Uh thing, but then you'd also be kind of sad because you're missing out on that comfort that you have. Um, Well, absolutely. And and there's just so much frequent communication, frequent scans, frequent blood work. And now we go in and now we only get to listen to the heartbeat, not see the baby necessarily. And and I did find that to be very, that's a, that is very challenging. And also just stopping the injections because you feel like you're being so proactive to be protective of the pregnancy. I found that that stage to be a little bit difficult too. Totally. Yeah. And it's funny because I've had patients who were really apprehensive about doing injections or particularly progesterone shots. And when it came down to stopping, they were like, (laughs) I don't want to stop. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's that's exactly how I was. Um, Soph is asking, does the embryo grading still play a role if you do have a PG, a genetically tested normal, which um, I, some of us still call it PGS in certain areas, even though we've, we've moved the vernacular to PGT. Yeah. So um, 
Yeah, it does. Because if all things are created equal, and if you have, hopefully, you know, if you have the opportunity to have multiple normal embryos, again, it's deciding which one is more likely to implant. So right. it's just different layers of decision making. That case in point, everybody, you know, when I had, you know, I started out with 14 embryos, by the time they got to the biopsy stage, we were down to nine, super normal, right? And then yeah. I, we sent them away, two were abnormal. And so then I had seven. And then two, by the time I was ready for transfer, there were two that were ready that were at that blastocyst stage, stage, uh, you know, day five, I think it was the day six transfer at that point, but they were they were blast, Dante almost hatched, the girl that got absorbed, you know, uh, was fully hatched. So now I'm going to a second embryo transfer where they had to continue to grow those other embryos before freezing them. So they made it to blastocyst stage. So kind of like you were saying, they were all normal, but the one, you know, some are slower growth ones than others. Do you, in the data with, with those slower growth ones, is that an indicator of poor quality, how long it takes? Because there's not really anything in the grading system that says like 4AA dash took seven days to get the blast. <laughs> well, I mean, we say, we say day five, day six, day seven. Sure. So that's all okay. part of the grade, you know, it all depends yeah. how things are listed, you know, in different columns right. and such. So that does play part of it. Um, you know, there really isn't significant data that says that day five versus day six have significant differences in implantation rates. So, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, inherently we might transfer a day five over a day six if all things are created equal. Mm -hmm. But again, that's where it gets complicated because then the grades make a difference a little bit too. Right. Um, right. Day seven is thought to have, you know, slightly lower implantation rates. Mm -hmm. But part of that is just because there are less too. Yeah, right. right I mean, right. there's less. So I mean, we've had, yeah. you know, many babies born from day seven embryos. Yeah. Okay. This is great. <laughs> Do you remember them? You when you have your baby wall, you're like, oh, that was my day seven embryo. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you probably do, right? <laughs> For the most part, yeah. At some point, it starts to get you know a little confusing, or you know, yeah. like, I'll, or what I think is like I'm so hard and fast, like totally accurate, then I'll be wrong yeah. about memory right. and stuff. But <laughs> but for the most part, yeah, I remember which ones are day seven. That's amazing. Uh, so we have somebody else. Sophie is also asking. Oh, what what are some of the reasons or what are some of the theories because we don't have great studies around chemical pregnancy loss especially with embryos that that have implanted and and then you know just stop growing right in that early pregnancy loss so you know are there theories do you have some data on that on maybe what are some causes for um for you know the the early pregnancy losses even with the normal that's hard um you know early losses are really hard I mean, it, it's the one thing is that, you know, we're trying and people are doing a lot of research to try to figure out why is the average, you know, 65% of live births? What happens mm. to those other 35%? And, you know, we're working hard to figure that out, but it's been a long time where that percentage hasn't really narrowed significantly. So right. it kind of boils down to, you know, there's likely your other causes going on with the embryo that it's mm -hmm. not just the chromosome. We all know that, I mean, there's a billion things that have to go exactly right. You know, you open up a medical textbook. I mean, there's so many little details involved right. that it, it likely is that there was just inherently an issue with the embryo. Sure. And that, and that you know. And, and again, we're not testing for everything. Yes, exactly. So, you know, I mean, and, and yeah. in, that, in that dividing and dividing and dividing and dividing, there are things that can go wrong. And it's, it's such a miracle every time it goes right. Yeah, there's, exactly. there's, yeah. there's a lot of science you're doing right. But then, you know, there's also some, some things that have to go right that are still unexplainable. 
Yeah. Which and is- it's hard because, you know, I always tell patients there's comfort in having answers, you know, and especially mm-hmm. when patients come to you for a diagnostic workup saying, Hey, I'm not getting pregnant. You know, they're mm-hmm. saying, well, what is it? Why am I not getting pregnant? Right. And I say, well, you know, I realize that it's kind of hard when you don't know why, but when we do find something, we have to then overcome it. And sometimes yeah. those things that we have to overcome aren't easy to overcome. So in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, you know, not finding an exact aha moment probably means it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. And maybe with the treatment, we can help overcome a little bit of everything mm-hmm. and help. I like that approach, especially because the quote unquote diagnosis of unexplained infertility has yes. a very frustrating terminology yes. because it feels like a non-diagnosis, but yeah. I like your approach of, okay, well, let's take that and try a little bit of this, a little bit of that, because even if there's not a clear cause, a clear route to, you know, to the, the poor outcomes, you still have lots of tools up your, your, your sleeve for optimization attempts. Yes. And I mean, even like with, you know, oral medications, yes, it's helping you ovulate. And you might say, well, I'm ovulating regularly, but one, mm-hmm. maybe it'll give you an extra follicle or two. So you have more targets and then we're coupling it with monitoring and maybe we're making sure that you're ovulating at the right time. And we could couple that with an insemination. Mm-hmm. So we're doing little things here and there that are just increasing your odds. Now, somebody else, um, and this is devastating. So Mrs. Emma Prince, I just want my heart goes out to you and thank you for sharing what's going on for you. She had her second FET with a 4AB and it got absorbed again. And she's just devastated. And they only have one left. So if that if that was her second attempt, and the the A is the outer side is, is as good as it gets, the inner is a B. And so then if she has, you know, uh, one left, you know, it, it it's her sounds like her third, it will be heading into her third cycle. What do you normally optimize between two failed transfers and that third? Mm-hmm. You know, do you advocate for uterine receptivity testing? You know, do you do anything else for optimization? That's hard. So I mean, the general kind of mantra is that, although yes, 65% live birth, right, with one normal embryo transfer, anybody can fail one. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so with two, um, after two, you start to think, okay, am I missing something here? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do two to start thinking about that. Cause yes, it kind of goes mm-hmm. back to how many embryos somebody has. And even if you have multiple embryos, it's not that we don't care about your embryos and say, oh, you have many, but we just kind of have to think methodically and thoughtfully about it. Um, and so to assess, okay, well, are we missing anything? So, you know, I typically will evaluate the uterine cavity. Um, mm-hmm. If they've only had a saline thought, I'll do a hysteroscopy. Uh, saline mm-hmm. thonal is really sensitive for looking for scarring or polyps or mm-hmm. fibroids, but sometimes there are things that are subtle or maybe things that are a little bit not visual, but tangible that with the tools we can feel to remove. Um, I would consider doing like an endometrial um, assessment to look for chronic endometritis, maybe underlying uh, inflammation. That isn't and something that's where you that, take a biopsy or a scrape? Biopsy, yeah. That's okay. not something that like has been clearly shown that, oh, this definitively does, mm-hmm. but you know, and I always tell patients, but it's, it's information. With, you're you're it's kind inf- of being yeah. a detective at that point. Well, it's hard. It you know, it it's a hard conversation to have with people because anytime mm-hmm. you do a study where you you yourself are the control, mm-hmm. and then you do an intervention and it improves, you don't really know mm-hmm. did it improve because you did the intervention or from the laws right. of statistics and, and average right. that it was going to work, right? And there right. was a study that was published that said that you know if you do three euploid embryo transfers the cumulative pregnancy, like live birth rate is over 90%. Wow. 
I know, which is outstanding, right? which, yeah. which indicates that, you know, when you're not getting pregnant, and in that study, they were just advocating for just keep trying, keep trying, exactly. Keep trying, and right? don't and one of the things we say is the worst thing you could do, though, is switch clinics kind of in the middle of that cumulative pathway, because you know, the protocol is going to be different, or the lab is going to be different. And we don't want variables. And we try to counsel patients, go into it expecting three, because of the cumulative birth rate. Yeah. But you know, I have to say to that, though, I mean, I've had my own patients who failed too, and sometimes just walking back into our own clinic is hard for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I offer them, I say, you know, you, you know, would you feel better to get a second opinion or to maybe mm -hmm. see somebody else? Not because to say that we're giving up, but sometimes there's some emotional trauma. I, I had a patient say sure that, you know, sure. she even couldn't look at the website of her doctor. She liked her doctor, but she Aww. couldn't even look because it, it brought back PTSD. It's triggering. Yeah. Yeah. Which truthfully, I didn't even think about that until I had a patient mm -hmm. tell me that. Mm -hmm. um, and she had nothing but the best things to say about her doctor. It just was an association. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I agree. Of course. But, but that kind of go, made us think like, well, it likely is something going on with the embryo, not necessarily mm -hmm. the, the uterus. But that right. being said, not everybody has three embryos right um or or yeah. or the stamina to do three you yes. know we have we've seen patients where uh, you know the, the marathons that they're going through and how many cycles that they do and the emotional and physical toll that that takes i i have yeah. i mean it blows my mind like that heroism that is, yeah. is required with the stamina to keep going because it's mm -hmm. such, it, it requires such endurance. It requires such resilience. I don't, I didn't have it. You know, I spaced out two embryo transfers by eight years <laughs> because I could, you know, I just couldn't yeah. get, get gear up to do it again. Um, yeah. So I really, I do really understand even that the idea of, oh my gosh, having to do this three times and, and how just it, mentally and emotionally exhausting it is just even think about it let alone do it it so is I, yeah. yeah we see that it's, it's hard and but then more so if you fail three then you know that paper was really helpful mm -hmm. but then it really is hard for patients who are like well i'm in that eight percent if you fail mm -hmm. three right so what do you do right. so kind of systematically we assess the uterine cavity um maybe look for chronic endometritis you could do an endometrial receptivity assay in which you're looking to say, hey, is the, is the standard number of days of progesterone that we're giving you, is that appropriate? Mm -hmm. you, is your body responding the way it should in getting ready for the embryo to implant mm -hmm. um, with that? And so it'll say, hey, actually based on you, on this person, so it's called a personalized embryo transfer, you need less, you need five and a half days versus six, or maybe you need seven days. Mm. Um, and that could be helpful. There's also tests where you look for endometriosis, Mm -hmm. um, I'll routinely like check like hormones if we're missing things like a thyroid or a prolactin mm -hmm. or make sure there's no underlying diabetes and things of that sort. Right. And we'll try different protocols and such, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard to kind of keep get, getting hard. knocked down and then getting back up. How do you, we have a number of questions coming in too, but I know it's hard for for the doctors too. I mean, I know it's hard for you. How do you cope with that as a physician? How do you not bring those losses home with you? Uh, it's hard for sure. Um, you know, I'm fortunate that I have kind of been all over the country and trained in different places. So I have a lot mm -hmm. of what I call like, you know, like big sisters um, that mm -hmm. I like reach out to. So like when I, um, I have a patient that I love mm -hmm. that where I'm working with and I told her, I was like, Hey, you know, like, do you want to get a second opinion? 
And she says to me, can't you just get one for me? And I was like, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Like, I mean, I practically do it all the time where I'm texting my friend. So, you know, right. And so I have so many different colleagues. That's how I cope. I talk to, That's and great. we all, we all do it. We have, you know, like colleagues, that, whether it's res- friends from residency or a fellowship or just mm-hmm. people we've met along that we're close to. Those are the ones mm-hmm. I talk to. And then we talk about, what do you do for this? How do you do this? Um, and great. it really helps. That's wonderful. So someone, yeah. someone's asking about karyotype testing before an FET. So, okay, karyotype is, is, that, is taking your blood, right? It's basically like what we do on the embryo, doing on you. Right. What are your chromosomes? Are you 46XX or 46XY if you're a male? And the reason that, you know, if, if you're developmentally, you know, appropriate um, and you don't have any health issues, you likely are chromosomally normal. However, there's a chance that maybe you have something called like a translocation in which basically little pieces of DNA from one chromosome is flipped and put on another and that one goes elsewhere. So you numerically have all the DNA that you need, all the pieces of all the chromosomes, but they're just in different places. So when your cells grow to divide to have half your, your egg or your sperm to then fertilize with the other, that um, resulting embryo is more likely to have an extra bit of some chromosome or missing parts mm. of the chromosome. And so that's really more useful prior to IVF and making the embryos than just the transfer. Because when you're doing the transfer, you've already made the embryo. The, right. the genetic makeup is there. But if you're deciding whether to do IVF or to do uh, PGT, then it might make sense to do that depending upon your clinical history. Because let's say you do have a translocation um, of something, then it decreases the chances of you having a normal embryo by half. So you take wow. the percentage of chances that you have, and it depends what kind of translocation. Mm-hmm. But um, so then you take, you know, based on your age, if you say, okay, if my doctor's saying half of all my embryos are going to be abnormal just based on my age, then you take that and divide it by half. Then you say, okay, realistically, what are my chances of getting a normal from embryo mm-hmm. from this IVF? Like, so it's just about counseling and expectations. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, and then have... certainly, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm saying, you know, not often, but um, occasionally people have really large translocations where, it, you know, the chances that them having a normal embryo coupled with their age is really low. Mm. So then patients say, okay, well, maybe I'll use a donor egg or donor sperm. Right. Okay. And then, and it, but if it's, if it's the 50, 50, you know, cohort, then it makes clinical sense for PGT. It makes sense for PGT. Yeah. But it just also, it just depends on what the chances are of having normal based on your age and the number of mm-hmm. eggs that we think we're going to get. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Luciana is asking how much less is the chance of miscarriage if you do genetically test the embryos and you're transferring a euploid? That's a good question. So statistically, if you look at studies, the overall miscarriage rates haven't, I mean, the thought is that, oh, you could do um, testing of the embryos for patients with recurrent pregnancy loss. And so, you know, when they look at the randomized style trials, they say that you don't significantly decrease the miscarriage rates, but it, it Whereas, you know, if you are 40, your chances of a miscarriage from a spontaneous pregnancy is like 40%. Now it goes down to like 10% and probably even lower. Okay, that's super helpful. Um, We have someone else that's uh, asking similar question about the grading. And, and, you know, we have new folks coming on right now. So I think it bears worth repeat. We should repeat it, which is this idea that the way that you explain that both embryo grading and a normal matters Right. And a lot of clinics are like, well, PGT trumps the embryo grading. And we have heard clinics actually say that. Well, it does. It does. I mean, I care a lot more whether an embryo is normal or not, but it's almost more for internal data. 
Right. The, but the if you have, but the way that you explained it, if you have five normals. Yeah. How right? do you decide which one? But yeah, exactly. And, yeah. And, but typically like I always counsel patients that like, look, you know, I think a lot of patients want to look at it and say, I want to transfer this one. Yeah. And I'll, although I respect that, I say, look, you know, let's leave some of it up to the discretion of the people who are spending the most time with these embryos. And, you know, for better or for worse, know it better than we do. You know, like those onesies. <laughs> Your first say, babysitters, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, like in a lot of ways, you know, someone's yeah. nanny or babysitter knows her kid in some, you know, a little right. bit better. But, and not, not to minimize it, but I, I no, just. No, but, but it's true. I mean, they're looking under the microscope every day, multiple times during the day, right? You know, yes. I, Exactly. analyzing every little bit of an embryo that we are not trained to, yeah. to analyze. And I, and I think there's also like some level of control, I think, in, which is understandable, but I, I counsel patients and at least for us, I can't speak for everybody, but we'll say, you know, what are your goals? The single best, single best male or single best female. And then, mm -hmm. you know, based on that, then we'll, we'll decide. And, but I'll, but I'll super basically helpful. tell them, yeah, like, Hey, these are approximately the same of these. I think you have one that's of a mm -hmm. lesser potential than those. Mm, very helpful. Now, we also have someone asking, what's the difference, I uh, love this question, between a reproductive endocrinologist and a reproductive immunologist? Oh, good question. So reproductive endocrinologist is, is me. Um, so, you know, when you do OBGYN and then you do fellowship to become a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. So, you know, we manage um, hormones. Traditionally, now we do like IVF and ovulation induction of that sort. And, um, but a reproductive immunologist is somebody that particularly um, deals with like immune biology. So oftentimes patients, you know, who have multiple failed cycles or recurrent pregnancy loss will be referred or will see a reproductive immunologist that might look at the different markers for your different immune cells, like natural killer cells or things mm -hmm. of that sort. And they might prescribe medications or infusions that affect your immune, immune status. That was a great explanation. Love that. <laughs> Denise is asking, is there a risk of DHA converting to testosterone? And do you still recommend everyone take it um, for, you know, improving egg quality or not? So there's DHEA and DHA. DHA is what's in prenatals. Um, and DHEA is a precursor to testosterone. So I don't usually just tell everyone to take DHEA because mm -hmm. for that reason, um, yeah. And so if you have already uh, an elevated level of androgens, um, then I don't think it's going to benefit you. So I'll, I'll prescribe it to some mm -hmm. some patients. But yeah, but I mean, that's kind of the, the point. Estrogen is derived from androgens. So you need androgens to, to produce estrogens. And what a great clarification question, because we started off this episode talking about all the different acronyms and how closely related those two things are. And someone might hear DHEA when you said DHA. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. I think we, we do that. We mix these up all the time because we're thrown around acronyms all the time. So Denise, thank you for asking that. I'm so glad that we got that clarified. Um, so we have somebody whose beta is currently a hundred at 13 days, um, 13.5 days post transfer. Okay. Congratulations. That was the beta. It's positive. Yeah, it's positive That's beta, exciting. Yeah. So yeah. in two days we need to see that doubled. Correct. I mean, about double. Yeah. I mean, you know, you want to see a trend upwards and really if right. it's got to go up by at least, you know, ideally 50 to 60%. Mm -hmm. But you got to also understand that there's fluctuations with assays and stuff. So I usually just say, is it going up approximately what we want it to go up? Right. Um, and as long as it's going up appropriately, then we do ultrasound and we go from there. 
This is another great question that's coming in and uh, unforgettable 603. I do want to encourage you to watch our Monday episode um, under a new playlist we have on Instagram live on our Instagram TV. Dr. Spitz, who is our reproductive um, urologist, who's a male infertility specialist covered the use of testosterone replacement therapy and the impact that it has on sperm counts. I'm going to let Dr. Such Dave also explain the risk of testosterone replacement therapy and what it does to sperm quality and sperm counts. Yeah. So um, I probably can't do it as, um, as good of a justice as uh, Dr. Spitz did, but um, here it goes. So when men make sperm, it requires a really high concentration of local testosterone within the testicles. But when men are taking exogenous testosterone, if they have a low serum blood level or for symptoms or for whatever the reason is, the brain sees it as, oh, I have lots of testosterone. I'm ample. I'm going to stop making it. So even though you're orally taking it, the testicles locally won't be making it and won't have any. So if you don't have any, it basically shuts down spermatogenesis and it really oftentimes will tank the sperm count. That was a fabulous explanation. He would be so proud of you. <laughs> yeah, the way that he, and he told us on Monday too, he has to remember the, the testicles need a hundred times the level of testosterone that you can detect in the blood, a hundred times more. Yeah. That, is, that just blew my mind that it would be, that it has to be that much. And there's simply no way to, through medication, get it to a hundred times more. You know, we did have a devastating um, story of, of one of uh, our, our patients. And, you know, sometimes men, you know, they, they see an ad about like, oh, they're going to have muscle improvement or their libido is going to increase with a natural testosterone supplement. And, yeah. and then it's right before they have to provide a sample. And they had a wonderful sperm count the first time four months ago. And then they go in and they have zero. Yeah. And then, it's, you know, and we've yeah. heard it over and over. And it's varying. I think oftentimes, you know, it should improve when you stop it, but it's hard because it's varying the length of time it'll take. And for some men, we see that mm -hmm. it often doesn't really come back in the way that we want it to. Mm, um, which is so scary. it's not all, yeah. So it's not always like, Oh, let me just take it and stop it and take it and stop it. Is that we don't, yeah. you know, especially if you don't know what it is at baseline. Right. So this is a great question somebody's asking, um, which has come up a lot kind of around the topic of reproductive imm immunology. And uh, China's asking, what are your thoughts on intralipids IV for FET in women with endometriosis plus BCL6 negative beta three integrin? I'm not sure what integrin is. Oh, beta know. three integrin, beta three integrin. Okay. It's, um, it's part of the same thing. Uh, that's a good one. Um, you know, I have uh, friends and colleagues that, that do it. It just, you know, it's one of those things that like ASRM, you know, talks about guidelines about, you know, adjuvant treatments, and there really isn't mm -hmm. data that shows that it's made a difference. Um, and it's an infusion and it could, you know, there it, it could be side effects. So we don't routinely mm -hmm. do it. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are providers that do it. And for some patients, it works. But, you know, we haven't seen any data that supports um, that it makes a significant difference. So for that reason, you know, I, you know, I, I don't recommend it to my patients. But, um, but I have had colleagues sometimes, sometimes don't you wish we just had this national registry, though, for the clinics who are doing these things to at least input their data on, yeah. these, you know, I, the experimental I, things? <laughs> I think, for, you know, the way I think of it is that if I'm going to do something that hasn't shown to clearly be effective, and that's true, like, you know, sometimes it takes forever to, to, to for right. studies to publish that makes a difference. But, you know, are there any risks to it? And what sure. are those risks? And, you know, right. with some that aren't that many big risks, 
And I don't think there's huge risk with intralipids, but it's another infusion. It's an added cost to the patients and they could have a reaction to it. And that's yeah. the main reason, but yeah, um, it's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Mello's asking what numbers should your A1C be during this time? And how important oh, is your A1C level before treatment? I love that question. Oh, that is a great question. So anything, you know, anything below the diagnosis of diabetes, right? That's ideal. Okay. Anybody who falls into the pre-diabetic range, we always make mm -hmm. sure that one, they have like a primary care physician that they're working with or a dietitian and that they start working on diet and exercise. And depending upon what it is and the other factors, we may or may not talk about medications like metformin. Anybody who is a diabetic, you want to optimize your, um, your hemoglobin A1C, which means that you're optimizing your glucose control and optimizing your overall health. Because mm. the key is, if you're a diabetic or you have an elevated hemoglobin A1C, you're at a higher risk of complications with the pregnancy. So ideally under seven, ideally under 6.5 if we can. Um, and so it's had, okay that they're getting there with medication though, if they're already on metformin to treat their diabetes or they're doing yeah. daily insulin injections, mm -hmm. that's, that's okay. That's not going to pose a risk because they're controlling that and getting it below the number that you like to see, correct? It is. Yeah. But you know, there's studies that have shown that the higher hemoglobin A1C is, and I'm not talking about like 5.9 mm -hmm. or six, we're talking about like above seven, eight, nine, right. 10, you have a right. higher risk of congenital abnormalities with the pregnancy. And it really just goes uh, up exponentially over seven to, okay. to 10. It gets really high. So the goal is like, look, you know, there's going to be some people who have an elevated hemoglobin A1C, but the key mm -hmm. is instead of saying, Hey, look, the key is being thoughtful about it. You know, if you've been a, a diabetic since you were seven and you've been on medication mm -hmm. and you've been controlling things, I just want to make sure in the grand scheme of things, are you in a good control or have you let things go for the last six months? If right. you let things go, let's optimize your medications because if you are a diabetic, you're at higher risk of preterm delivery, um, right. you know, IGR and things of that sort. And typically, would you have them see a perinatologist or an MFM before even doing a transfer with you or working with you? Yeah. So anybody with any complications, I, I offer them a preconception consultation mm -hmm. with a high risk OB doctor and also them referrals. And I think part of it is just understanding like, hey, what are your risks while you sure. are pregnant? And then uh, a lot of the doctors in the community, you know, uh, will refer and kind of co-manage with high risk doctors. Right. So they've already kind of had a relationship with one and they feel comfortable. I mean, the, and, and the reality is for you and treating us older moms, <laughs> you know, older moms to be, we're by age, so many of us are in the high risk category anyway. And, uh, you know, spoken from experience the first time around, I was already a high risk mom. The first embryo transfer I did, I actually found that MFM conversation to be really educational and very helpful. Yes. yes. So it's and, not... Yeah. It's not a drag to have to add one more conversation into it. It actually was really empowering. Totally, yeah. And, you know, to be fair, everyone over 35 gets the diagnosis of geriatric pregnancy, exactly. whether you're 42 <laughs> or 35. We so want to meet it, the man who came up with yeah. that term. You know, it depends on the hospital. It depends on what hospital and which ones label you as advanced maternal age or geriatric. Right, so. right. Yeah, my hospital at the time was geriatric, and I was – yeah. I, I think laughing and crying at the same time. <laughs> yeah, mine didn't say geriatric, it just said advanced. So I felt better. But my sister in law said geriatric. <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy. We've got to change these terms, people. Yes. <laughs> so uh, another Preet question here, and Preet, don't worry, you can ask as many questions as you need to. Um, she's 27. She did have a miscarriage at week five after her first mm. FET. Sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, I had five chemical pregnancy losses too, Preet. So 
Um, they were painful. Her thyroid was 7.60 IU. Does thyroid play a role in miscarriage? And what steps would she take for her next FET? And how long should she rate? Yeah, um, I'm sorry to hear about that. Um, yeah, thyroid definitely has been shown that it could affect pregnancy rates and have an association with miscarriage and, and outcomes. So um, thyroid level of seven um, is elevated. So I would recommend that you, you know, you have, you either work with your doctor or an endocrinologist to start medication. And I would wait to do a transfer until your thyroid is under control. Mm -hmm. Typically the medications work pretty quick. So it, it probably isn't going to be longer than four weeks or so. Um, but I would make sure that your thyroid level is under control and have it retested before you have another transfer. What, what number should it be under? Uh, that's up for debate, but to normal, you know, depending upon the lab you use is 4.5 or five and under. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, okay. you know, there's some thought that if it's between 2.5 to four, that you're at a higher risk of having miscarriages. Mm. Um, but that hasn't really been shown. It's been shown that if you test positive for the antibodies, like thyroid peroxidase antibodies, mm -hmm. you're more um, inclined to convert to overt hypothyroidism. And that's oh. been, you know, associated with miscarriages. So if it's in, in that in-between range with a positive antibody, many people will treat, many will only treat if it's above four. But really what's tricky is that the recommendation is that when you're pregnant for your thyroid level to be under 2.5. So it's hard ah, to say, oh, I'm fine with it being four before your transfer, but nine days right. later when you are pregnant, oh, it's got to be both. <laughs> so it, it's, you know, so I typically, you know, if somebody's actively trying to get pregnant, I'll try to keep it under 2.5. It's, sure. you know, but like if someone's trying to freeze their eggs and their thyroid is 3.6, I say you're fine. Right. Now, yeah. I was on Nature Throid for a really long time to treat mine because it was slightly elevated after going through cancer treatment. And, but then when I was on my prenatal, they said, oh, you shouldn't be taking the nature thyroid because it's contraindicated um, with folic acid. And I was like, well, shoot. <laughs> so then they switched me to Synthroid. You know, mm -hmm. there's all these little things that we have to, you know, that we have to know about is Synthroid or what's the other one that's pretty common that people take? Tyrosin? Uh, yeah, maybe that one too. Well, the, the Synthroid is a commercial name and then there's Levothyroxin. Ah, right, um, right. But, you know, typically there, you know, when you're making Medicaid, and I'm not a pharmacist, but you know, the, the fillers that go into the actual capsule can affect mm -hmm. the way the different medications metabolize. So mm -hmm. if you have like 100 of Synthroid and then you go to a different pharmacy and get 100 of levothyroxine, your body may metabolize it differently. So really yeah. the recommendation, if you're going to do one or the other, stick to it. Mm -hmm. Right. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And if you have those contraindication questions, we do have a pharmacist on the Fertility Answers app who can answer some of those questions. Dr. Jessica is amazing with Honeybee Health. Perfect. We love her. Yes. Um, so uh, let's see. Mustang is asking curious thoughts about a septate uterus, no history of miscarriages, and has one child without needing fertility support. But would it be worth it to reset the septum? Oof, that is that is a good question. Um, so we you know, the thought is that with a uterine septum, that you're at a higher risk of miscarriage, right? And it depends on which studies and which textbooks you look at. Some will say 50% mm. of miscarriage, some will say 80%. And traditionally, the thought is you need to take it out. But there really aren't any randomized trials on septums. I think they tried to do one in Europe, mm. um, but I don't think they ever completed it. The randomized people to saying, hey, you have yours resected and you don't. Because again, it goes back to using yourself as a control. Every study that looked at septums looked at women before and after. And so, and who do they include in the resection? People who are miscarrying or, or weren't getting pregnant, not the women mm -hmm. who had symptoms like you and had it complete, you know, and had a complete pregnancy. 
So it's hard. I would say if you um, had, if you have any miscarriages, or have any issues getting pregnant, I would take it out. Mm. Um, and taking it out is fairly innocuous. I shouldn't say innocuous, but it's fairly, um, you know, not as invasive uh, procedure, you know, it's an outpatient procedure. But sometimes, you know, it does require repeat procedures to get it all out. So mm. it's hard to decide, you know, if you're somebody that's on the Fertility Answers app, and you're probably in tune to different treatment mm-hmm. options, I think you'd probably be more inclined to get it out versus waiting mm-hmm. for a miscarriage. But you know, there's probably people walking around out there who have septums and have no idea. They don't even know, right? No, and, because and then if you get pregnant, yeah, and then if you get pregnant, and you show up at like, you know, 10 weeks, to your OB, they may even be hard to tell that you have a septum. Wow. Because the uterus is so has expanded so much, right? So then it almost, yeah, right. I yeah, get that. that makes sense. Yeah. But you know, Is if someone so- comes to me, yeah, I would take it out because yeah. I'm a fertility specialist and that's what we right. do and saying, you know, what's the alternative waiting for something bad to happen. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I don't, you know, if somebody says I don't want to take it out, I, I think that's totally fair. Sure. You know, these days, I feel like with insurance companies, you know, they want everything to be an outpatient procedure, regardless of how difficult the procedure is or not. (laughs) I had, I I had an 11 hour procedure that wasn't supposed to be 11 hours, and they still kicked me out. I couldn't believe it. Exactly. It was a it was an attempt at reconstructive surgery that didn't go so well. And uh, I know, I mean, it's fine. Now I'm fine. But you know, I couldn't believe it. I was like, and I felt horrible. You know, I felt so sick afterwards. I was like, Oh my gosh, but it's, yeah. it's insurance, you know, it's yeah. insurance. Yeah. Gotta love, gotta love American insurance. All right. MC's asking another really great question. She's asking, what's the reason to prescribe estrogen supplementation after egg collection, but in preparation for a fresh transfer, her old clinic did not do this, but her new clinic does. And she also has hypothyroidism, which, oh my goodness, we just see so much hypothyroid thyroidism in the world. We do. I mean, you know, so much, so many of our patients are on the medication. So, okay. The reason is that your ovaries after you ovulate every month, right? In an ideal world, you ovulate, you get pregnant, and then your ovaries are producing estrogen and progesterone that support the pregnancy. When you do an egg retrieval, there's concern that by the act of putting a needle into the ovary, we're disrupting the cells that are producing the hormones. So if you're going to have a fresh transfer and you need hormones to support that pregnancy, then the recommendation is traditionally to give supplemental hormones to support that pregnancy. Until the placenta takes over and you kick us out of your practice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's the idea. We, we graduate it. you. We sing a song, you know, we throw I, confetti. <laughs> Back pre-COVID, we would hug. Yeah. yeah now we there just used elbow. to be a lot yeah. of hugs. Exactly. Oh, yeah. my gosh. So um, Pre is just following up with her thyroid was normal in December 2020. It was under two. But in February, when she had her FET, it went up to seven. Does IVF medication elevate it? Um, if so, should she just maybe wait a bit to see if it goes down on its own? Uh, it depends. IVF medici- medication on its own shouldn't elevate it, but there's a lot of um, different hormones that have the same subunit that when you test for maybe could cross-react. So it's possible oh. that when she tested for it, we don't see it that often, but it's possible. Sure. Um, That's a big it, jump though in just two months, right? Yeah. I mean, two so to seven could be, in two yeah. months. So something could be like assay differences and stuff. I would probably repeat it. Um, it just depends because if you wait to see Mm -hmm. if it's any different and then you, then you do have to get treated, then you got to delay. So I would just repeat it sooner rather later to make sure it's not a mistake. And if it really is elevated, I would take the medication. 
Yeah, I do love that answer. Um, we're coming up on our on our time. We just had two more questions. Sneak in. Are you okay for just like three more minutes? Yeah, for sure. My, 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 son, my, my son is our timekeeper and he's already checked in three times. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone in the community knows he's a very precise timekeeper. All right, so MC is asking, um, yes, the estrogen blocks, the, or, or maybe confirming, the, the estrogen blocks the conversion of T4 to T3. I guess, and in, in when you were talking about why do estrogen before... Estrogen, estrogen has an effect in that, yeah. But but what they're measuring is not your T4 or T3. That was your measurement of your TSH, which comes from your mm -hmm. brain. And um, so it all plays a role, but mm -hmm. I would probably um, just repeat it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and let's see. Do you recommend using oral and injectable progesterone after retrieval? Let's also answer that. Does your clinic do oral or... Or oral and oh, well. <laughs> we do injectable. Egg yeah, we do injectable. Oral gets metabolized uh, by the liver, and so you know the the thought is that it may not be as efficacious. So right. we'll either do vaginal or injectable. Okay. Oh boy, you guys are coming up with all these great questions. All right, um, Preet, you're welcome. She's sending love from Canada. Amazing information. Oh, she's asking. She was clarifying. She she didn't mean to say oral. She meant to say vaginal and injectable. Do you ever uh, yeah. do both? Uh, we do sometimes, but we traditionally, we, it depends on the person, but usually either yeah. uh, shots or vaginal. Yeah, we, we, and we've seen that consistently too. You know, other clinics have said, you know, we still do only the, the injectables because the, the success rates are so good. Why change something that works, right? Yeah, it's hard. It's kind of like an old, it's an old way of thinking, but you uh -huh. know, no one's going to complain at the end of the day if, they, if, if, if you're successful. Stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Trust me, my, my butt was black and blue after all those yeah. weeks of progesterone injections, but I did them myself, single mama, and it's still empowering even when it ends up black and blue, but Arnica works great, <laughs> you know, so lather Arnica gel on afterwards, and I promise that you can handle it. You'd be okay. Last, last question, everybody. We're going to let Dr. Such Dave get back to her evening. What do you recommend for IUI if you only get one follicle? Do you cancel that cycle or do you still make the attempt? No, I still make the attempt. Yeah, I mean, ideally you want to get two if you can to increase your chances, but you're still optimizing the timing um, and you're being monitored and making sure your uterine lining is great. So yeah, I wouldn't cancel it. I would just keep going. I mean, that's what a, a natural cycle is anyway. It's just one. We just need yep. the one to work. Yeah. So Thank you so very much. Oh, you course. are a wonderful educator, a very oh, clear communicator. You. I am so grateful that we got to do this finally and that we that the first glitch worked itself out. I don't think Dante had COVID, but I didn't bother like dragging him in to get tested. Yeah. I just thought he's already suffering. So, you know, wouldn't change how I treat him. Um, yeah. But we'll see you again next month. So everybody yeah. uh, follow OC Fertility so that you can, and you're welcome, Bertita, for these lives. We love doing them. If you have further questions, you can always ask them on the Fertility Answers app, iOS and Android. And don't forget, if we text you, that's a real human, and you can engage the real humans to help you find the right clinic, the right surgeon, the right uh, clinic.